And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we're trying something different tonight than we have ever done, although I've been very much craving it this entire run, which is almost to 10 years come this July with this podcast. My God, I need to develop this quicker. But anyway, uh, without further ado, I I appreciate all of you coming to the podcast tonight. And let me welcome uh, Nick Davis to the program. He is a writer, director, producer, uh, which includes the uh, – he's been on the podcast before, and uh, within the uh, – like at the time, he had just directed Once Upon a Time in Queens, the 1986 Mets story, and we had him here as uh, kind of just talking about the legacy of the Dodgers through the Mets lens, as we uh, like to do a lot, and he was here with Greg Prince. But tonight we're going to utilize his, uh, his film side of things, and – He's also the writer of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait. And, you know, I, I know I pronounced that with the kind of the old world pronunciation, Nick. Yeah, uh, that, was the, the that, was, a, that was interesting. <laughs> that was uh, very interesting. <laughs> it, it's, it's sometimes I even wanted to say going to our Mets connection, I even like to pronounce Kevin Plavecki because I know that's how the old world would have pronounced it. But I, I tangent here, Nick, uh, please, uh, uh, let, me, let me welcome you to the program. And, and again, thank you so much for joining us for this unprecedented episode of the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Wow. Well, it's a treat to be here, Sam. And uh, anything with the word unprecedented in it uh, is uh, always good. <laughs> well, I think. Right, right, exactly. We, we want to make sure we're not unprecedented, but, but I digress there and, and uh, make a topical modern joke. Uh, but we're, we're, we're going all the way back to the early 40s, uh, the, the late 30s as well. And this is something that I've really wanted to do for a long time, which was dive deep into the, the cultural background of the era that I'm writing about. And I think especially... It's it's so such a unique position to have a guest on that has family roots in what many people consider the greatest film of all time that happened in. Am I, uh, you know, uh, apologies. Was it 1941 or they competed Casablanca and Citizen Kane and Citizen Kane being Herman Mankiewicz's uh, work uh, was written in 1942. Uh, well, no, it was written in really written in forty, uh, and the movie came out in forty one. Um, and 41, Herman right, right. Uh, Herman did not attend the Oscar ceremony in February of forty two, um, and therefore missed hearing his name, which I think probably would have been pronounced Mankiewicz uh, in uh, <laughs> in the ballroom in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I always, my I always go back. And, I always go back. Uh, uh, so sorry to cut you off, but I always go back to the fact that uh, uh, it wasn't Wagner, as we would pronounce it now. It was Wagner. Uh, so yeah. that's Wagner, where, where yeah. I go yeah. with that. Wagner. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, Chris Christie at uh, NBC. Wagner. Yeah. Do we, <laughs> um, I'm, sure you've, I'm sure you've gone down that road before. 
Um, yeah, so it's interesting about the pronunciation. I mean, I think that, that one of the big things about uh, the Jews in Hollywood, and if you read a book like mm. Neil Gabler's How the Jews Invented Hollywood, like there was such pressure to assimilate and, uh, on, uh, mm. and, and sort of the, the phrase was hide the Jew. So uh, I think right. they, they didn't want to be – they didn't want to lean into their foreignness, um, and uh, especially in World War II also. You, like you just – you wanted to appear as American as, as baseball and apple pie. Uh, you know, I've, I've even been thinking about this, and it's a bit of a tangent, but I think what people miss about the facts uh, about Jews in Hollywood, and it's come up recently – is the fact that we, we may have, and, and I'm, I'm kind of incognito Jewish in terms of my last name. I'm Maxwell. Uh, however, yeah. my middle name's Markman, and, and my mother is Jewish, and my dad converted. So I, I know, you know, I, I think it's until my personality really erupts, uh, some people think I'm Italian just by the look and, and, and you know, they, you know, before they even know the last name Maxwell. Um, but, I, you know, I, I find it very interesting. Yes, like, and, th- and this is where, like, there's, there isn't a cabal. There, we're not only hiring Jewish people within Hollywood, like, and we're changing our names to cater to the audience who we think will not accept us Jews as easily with a name like Schwartz or, or uh, uh, Leibowitz as as John Stewart's original name. You know, this is constantly happening and it still happens where we're changing our names just to cater to the audience. Yeah. Well, and so did Mr. Alan Konigsberg. I mean, it, the 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 extent to which Jews have wanted to not appear Jewish. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not just Jews. I mean, many immigrants, especially in the first part of the, the 20th century, uh, changed their name because they just wanted to blend yeah. in and, and be American. Um, but in the movie business, especially, and, and especially in the late thirties, there was like this amazing anxiety about being found out. And so, you know, the, the code came in and, and Breen and, you wanted to make sure that everything was, you know, gonna gonna fly with this sort of imagined Middle America uh, and this sort of righteous Puritan values that, um, you know, nobody uh, necessarily really had, but everybody thought that everybody else had, and so you you wanted to live up to that. Um, and uh, yeah, and so the Jews in Hollywood, and and you know certainly uh, were were part of that. So that's that's perfect. I appreciate you mentioning the late '30s because that's where we want to go. That's where my my hypothetical pilot starts is in the late '30s, and I want to do the the broad spectrum of pop culture. And and you and I talked beforehand how. I, I view it as basically, in many ways, just the entire decade of the 30s, uh, uh, kind of inventing modern media. Um, but let's start with the family a- aspect. Let's start uh, uh, specific, and then we'll go broad. So um, you wrote this book on uh, your grandfather and great uncle, uh, and you know, just what were they doing in the late 30s? Uh, and and what was their role in Hollywood at the time? Uh, 
So Herman uh, had come out to Hollywood somewhat famously in 1926. He was the kind of the one of the first Eastern writers who was lured there uh, by the money. And he wrote this famous telegram back east to his friend Ben Hecht, where he said, uh, you know, will, will you accept 300 per week to come work for Paramount Pictures? Uh, the 300 is peanuts. There's millions to be grabbed out here. And your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. And so that's, that sort of started the flood of Eastern screenwriters who came out to Hollywood to make a quick, easy buck um, before in their minds heading back East to do the real work of, you know, serious work like novels and plays and, you know, nonfiction and journalism or whatever. Um, But Herman, like many of them uh, was so seduced by the weather and the money um, that he stayed and and made a life for himself, although really all the way through the 30s, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, all right, but at any minute, I'm going to give this up and go back east and be a real writer. And in fact, in the late 30s, on one such trip back east to sort of see if a play could maybe get mounted on Broadway, um, he met Orson Welles. And the two of them had this lunch at the 21 Club where they came away convinced that they were the two most entertaining men in the uh, Northern Hemisphere. And, um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, when Wells is out, um, uh, out in Hollywood, he, he calls on Herman, uh, and, and, you know, the result is Citizen Kane. But so in the late 30s, um, you know, Herman never liked the work. He, he thought screenwriting was beneath him, and he also was uh, an alcoholic. And so, and he was also anti-authoritarian. Uh, and, and he was also lively and funny and incredibly warm and loving and, and sort of really just profoundly charismatic. But he was constantly running into trouble in Hollywood. And, and he also gambled and had a lot of gambling debts. And by the late 30s, the shine or the sheen had, had pretty much worn off. Uh, of, of Hermione Mankiewicz, and he was, um, you know, he'd been fired by, by most studios by that point. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was one guy who fired him at, at MGM, and he said, you know, not only am I firing you, Herman, but I'm going to make sure you don't work for any studio anywhere in town ever again. And Herman looked at the guy and he said, promises, promises. Like, he, he didn't like what he was doing. Uh, and he thought the movies were an inferior art form. But by the late 30s, he had been joined out in Hollywood by his younger brother, Joe. And where Herman was large and witty and warm and expansive, Joe was sort of cold and calculating and ambitious and super smart and, and very witty, um, but definitely held something in reserve. And he was 11 and a half years younger than Herman. Um, but he got out to Hollywood, and he was a completely different generation. He, oh, he got there only two or three years later, and he quickly saw, wait a minute, this is great. Like, this is a totally legitimate 20th century art form. I'm going to master it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study this business. I'm going to do well. And, and he rises um, pretty much on a kind of graceful um, I don't know. I don't know what, how to describe it, but like a graceful arc 
upwards as Herman's is going gracefully downwards. Um, and, you know, Joe begins as a producer, um, uh, the, the head of uh, MGM, um, Louis B. Mayer said, you know, you gotta, gotta walk before you can run. You, you can't just jump right into writing and directing. Uh, and so he produced a lot of terrific movies like Fury, Fritz Lang's Fury, and, and then later The Philadelphia Story and The Woman of the Year, um, and, and was really becoming a, a well-known and successful producer. He'd also written some stuff when he first got out there and, and went through the uh, screenwriting thing and was even nominated for an Academy Award when he was like 21 or something. Um, but he is at the, by the late 30s, he's producing, and he's, He's well-known in Hollywood for being kind of a, you know, cold, ruthless jerk. And he's the man who fired F. Scott Fitzgerald from a, a, a writing job. Fitzgerald had gone out a couple of times, like Herman, he went, but then he did get back to New York. And then he went out again when he was really down on his luck. And he, Joe hired him to write a, a, a movie and, and ended up firing him. And, and Fitzgerald was, you know, furious and despairing. And, um, and, and, you know, so Joe had a reputation as like sort of cold and calculating and not that great a guy, you know, talented and smart, but people didn't love him the way they loved Herman. But that in, that's where the two of them were in the late 30s. I mean, that's a rather long answer, but that's... Um, that's that's where they were. They were kind of that's beautiful. ships ships in the night crossing. Uh, their their paths were crossing. You know, before I met you, I watched Mank. Um, so it was very uh, uh, like like lovely to find out this family connection when I fi- when I finally met you, and so just your opinion, you know. Um, I mean, Fincher's one of the greatest directors of, of our era, uh, one of the greatest of, I would even call uh, of all time. I've only seen it once. I, I did appreciate it, and I need to watch it, I think, in one sitting because I think I gave it kind of a, next, a Netflix treatment. Um, mm-hmm. What is your opinion of that film? And, and, and also, just going off of something that you said uh, about Herman, that he – ends up making, you know, what many consider the greatest motion picture of all time still uh, after being kind of blasé about even joining film. Yeah, I mean, that is the kind of the, the, the tragedy of his life is he didn't, um, he didn't understand that actually he was, you know, with one hand tied behind his back, he was sort of contributing to all these classic movies. Um, and had such tremendous talent, um, even as he hated himself and, and hated the work. Um, but Wells did sort of say to him, no, 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 let's really do something here. Let's make something great. Make it as good as, as you've always wanted your things to be good, and, and we'll, you know, we'll do it. And so he, he really did, um, you know, he, he really did, uh, he did that with no hands tied by his back. Um, my opinion of, of Mank, I don't even trust my opinion of Mank. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm such a reed in the wind when it comes to it. I love the fact that the movie exists. I love the fact that Herman sort of, you know, entered the national conversation or the national imagination as a result of the film. I think that the, the film itself is, 
has so much to recommend it and was made with such love and care and attention to detail and the evocation of the era is great and the black and white is great and the portrait of Herman that emerges is a portrait of a man who is warm and, and witty and giving and, and all these good things. Um, I don't think that's my Herman Mankiewicz. I, I feel like it's that, you know, but, but it's a great character that, that Oldman created. Um, and, but, but, but the fact is I would agree. I agree with almost everything anybody says about the movie. If people come up to me and say, Oh my God, didn't you love it? Isn't it great? Isn't it? You know, I say, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But if they say, didn't you feel it was a little overdetermined and kind of dramatically inert and, and oh, by the way, speaking of Jews, like couldn't they have cast a Jew as Louis B. Mayer at least? And, and isn't there something kind of airless and, and overdetermined about the film? And, and wasn't the whole essence of that era and the essence of, of that movie and the essence of Herman Mankiewicz a kind of improvisational brilliance that spews things out in a kind of uncontrolled way, which is kind of the very opposite of Fincher's aesthetic? I would say, yes, yes, I happen to agree with you. <laughs> uh, I see your point. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 you know, I think it's, it's, it, 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 it's a, it's a terrific, you know, thing. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that it exists. Uh, I think that's my bottom line. I mean, it's very hard to be churlish about a movie that portrays your grandfather as kind of a combination of a drunken Bugs Bunny and William Shakespeare and Oscar (laughs) Schindler. So it's, uh, it, you know, I, I, I can't complain. Uh, and and I, I, one of the things I definitely loved about it is, I mean, I can't attest to how it was shot, it, it, but I, I do love the fact that it, it felt from the opening like a movie made in 1941, at least credits wise. Like, like, uh, I, oh, I, yeah. I like yeah. the stylistic elements of, of a lot of it. And I do need to give it another, Another look, and I, I really appreciate the soundbite we now have, you know, how I'll, I'll go into it critically uh, speaking. Um, so, well, no, I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's not what you take away from it. Because, I, look, I've seen it three times. It's also very hard to understand. It's like right. um, you, you, you may need the subtitles on. Um, he, yeah. he, he, he did something with the sound that I gather they did back then. Um, but it just, it makes for, and there's a lot of overlapping dialogue, and then there's a whole plot about the governorship of California, and it's it's a little confusing. Well, you know, it's it, you mentioned how, um, I'm guessing Gary Oldman is not a Jew, although, uh, you know, even being British, he may be. Uh, there, there is yeah, he a... May be, a he, he may be, but it's not, it, it's too bad that they didn't get... Um, that there isn't, I mean, I couldn't, you know, Michael Stuhlbarg is great. I, I would like to see Michael Stuhlbarg uh, try Herman Mankiewicz. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, you know. Oldman literally has tried, I feel like Oldman has literally tried in his career every ethnicity. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so, so I, let's, let's go into Joe real quick. Uh, you know, I think yeah. Citizen Kane definitely brings... Herman to to another profile, um, I, you know. I don't know enough about Joe. I'm guessing our audience doesn't. If you could, you you went into it a little bit when when talking about the broad strokes of both of them in the late 30s. 
Um, so what, what are some of the things you uncovered within the book about Joe? And, and uh, what, what is, you know, like, like basically uh, talk about the unsung aspects of Joe Mankiewicz. Well, uh, interestingly, Joe, at the end of his life, did not consider himself Jewish. Uh, Herman did. Um, but, but Joe really didn't. And in fact, he, uh, he had three wives and his third and final wife was um, Episcopalian. And I think he may even have converted, but uh, he, he lived to a ripe old age. And in fact, when he was uh, when he died, his funeral was in a church, and my cousins and I, um, we were sort of, you know, filtering in to, to the church, and, and one of us said to the other, wait a minute, aren't we Jewish? <laughs> like, there was, uh, and, and I think that, like, in terms of, like, you know, wanting to get along and go along, I think Joe was much more like that. I mean, his best-known work and, and the work um, that is uh, – masterpiece uh, is all about Eve. Um, and part of why I think it's Eve. a masterpiece, it's about, you know, um, the theater world in, in Broadway in the late 40s. And uh, is, I think part of why it's so good is because Joe was drawing on, on his own life, not just his love of and study of theater and the theatrical personalities, but because the central dynamic in All About Eve, um, which is, for those of you who haven't seen it or, or, or uh, need a refresher, it's about a younger artist, a, a younger actor, actress, uh, they used to call them, um, Eve Harrington, who worms her way into the life of this older actor, actress, Margot Channing, played by Betty Davis, in a fantastic, charismatic performance. Um, and, and kind of takes everything away from her that had belonged to Margot Channing. And Eve is younger and scheming and cold and calculating and talented, but not nearly as beloved as her older, uh, you know, the, the Margot Channing character, who is charismatic and wild and self-destructive and sort of maddening, uh, but ultimately very lovable. And it is my contention that that is an emotional autobiography on the part of Joe and that he is writing, whether he knew it or not, about him and Herman. Um, and I think that's what makes the movie so good and so resonant. Um, now, uh, that's just a theory, and it was not a wholly original theory uh, to me, although it was when I was first watched, or not first, but I watched it with my wife, and she, she was the one who said, oh, my God, he's right. And I said, yes, my God, you're such a smart woman. I'm so glad we're married. Um, but then I, in, in doing the research, I saw that people had pointed out to Joe, and he completely poo-pooed the notion that um, it had anything to do with Herman. And he almost willfully misunderstood the question, um, in part, I think, because he was so uh, consumed by the competitiveness with his older brother. Mm. who had gotten everywhere first. He'd been more spectacular. He was the star of the family. He was also uh, like uh, the, the shame of the family. Uh, but, but in many ways, like he was such a star. And, and Joe even said at one point, like, it's going to say on my epitaph, here lies Herm, I mean Joe Mankiewicz. Like he was constantly being confused for Herman. Um, and so the fact that he then has this tremendous run of success um, 
in Hollywood, which he had. Like in you know, he won best he won the best director and best screenplay two years in a row, which no one has ever done for hmm. all, a letter to three wives and then all about Eve. And then in the fifties, he made a run of a, a string of very, very successful movies. Um, you know, suddenly last summer and, and barefoot Contessa, which has its detractors, but you know, like a lot of really good, good movies, um, all the way up through, uh, Sleuth in 1972, the film hmm. for which, uh, he, you know, as, as he'd like to say is like the only time in history, the entire cast, was nominated for Academy Awards because both Olivier and Michael Caine were nominated. Um, now, in the middle of that, he has his own shame, his own cross to bear, which is Cleopatra in 63, which was a huge bomb. Um, but, but, but that wasn't really his fault, although he got blamed for it because he came on to an already very troubled production and did an incredibly good job of, of sort of, you know, working with a very, very unwieldy uh, amount of material. Um, but anyway, it, it, the, the point is Joe was a success and he was like a, a much more consistently successful guy than his brother who was constantly having, they, you know, my mother used to like, they, they used to have to move out of their house and, and rent it out and then live in a, a cheaper place because of Herman's gambling debts. And they moved three or four times out of their house in Beverly Hills. And it was, I, I, the, the way they talk about it, it doesn't seem to have been that humiliating, but it can't have been pleasant. Um, and and that, that kind of thing didn't happen in Joe's family. Uh, you know, Joe was, he, although he didn't have a stable home life, I mean, his, his first wife, they divorced after three years. Uh, and his second wife was uh, not a totally mentally stable woman. She was an actress, um, and she ended up taking her own life in the late 50s. Um, but, you know, it, you know we, can't, <laughs> we can't all have perfect lives. Um, so there was, there's a lot of trauma and a lot of drama in these two men's lives, um, but uh, anyway, that's a little thumbnail sketch of, of Joe. I mean, more than a thumbnail, maybe a whole song. Well, well, you know, I'm looking at the poster now, and this is just like one of the greatest posters I've ever seen. Um, I think this is one of the things I love about film itself is the fact that um, I'm so into it, yet I, I know that there's all these classics that I've never seen, and I've never seen All About Eve, and I just purchased it because why not? Um, especially the way you talked about it, but also its reputation and, and even oh, it's great. still to it's this so day. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and 99, it's still like, if we're looking at it through a modern terms, 90, uh, 99% rotten tomatoes and four and a half stars on iTunes. Um, this movie oh, is considered good. one of the yeah, greatest. Four and a half. Yeah, exactly. Oh, four and, 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 and a half. Let's look for the four and a half. <laughs> You're always going to get, like, some half just be like, like, the sound was bad, and they gave it one star, like, something weird right, like that. Right, like, right, okay. It's, it's right. just, it's so weird the way that, that works these days. Right. But, um, <laughs> so you you look at it, and, and I think this is where I will forgive my ignorance, and, and I think I'm, I'm coming at peace with the fact that sometimes I, I will talk out of turn, if you will, um, that... Joseph may have been the more sung between the two of them, it, it sounds like. Well, I, it, for a long time he was. 
And when I was a kid, I would go into bookstores and you'd find Hollywood books and look in the back index. And Joe would have, you know, you know, whatever, many, many, many mentions. And Herman would get, you know, page 17 and page 98. And, it, you know, on page 17 would be the telegram and page 98 would be Citizen Kane. And that was pretty much it. Um, then in the 70s, um, Herman's reputation started to come back. We don't need to go into it, but basically his reputation came back. And because of Citizen Kane and the enduring, uh, even though it keeps slipping down that, that list that you know comes out every 10 years, it's now number three on the list. Um, but you know it's considered one of the greats and, and now the Fincher movie. And so people know Herman in a way that is more like what it was like in the 30s. But in the 40s and 50s and 60s and, and, and you know, into the mid-70s, it was all Joe. I mean, Joe was the dominant one, and Herman died in 53. So Joe had the field to himself for a long time, although to the end of his life, he remained haunted and gripped, not the very end, or at least according to my book, which I believe, uh, I do think he, he reached a kind of peace in the last six months of his life. But before then... You know, in the late, uh, both brothers had been, spent time in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Joe was born there. Herman's dad moved the family there when Herman was about six or seven. Um, and Wilkes-Barre is a town in Pennsylvania, and they called up Joe and said, hey, we want to do a film festival honoring uh, all the films. And uh, Joe was like, oh, that's great. He's like, yeah, it'll be, you know, the, the Mankiewicz brothers, all the films that you wrote and directed and some of the ones – Joe was like, I, I want nothing to do with it if Herman's involved. And it's like, dude, like he's like 80 years old at that point. But that was how gripped he was. And he, so they didn't do this film festival honoring the Makers brothers in Wilkes-Barre, uh, even though Herman had been in the grave for over three decades by that point. Um, that's how much these two men uh, were, were sort of locked in Joe's mind. They were locked in this sort of struggle. Um, that that lasted for so very long, with such ruinous effects. That is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sad ending to it all, um, and you know, it it it, it gives you pause any time, like you're dealing with your own uh, issues with with other human beings, uh, to kind of just remember that life is short and. You know whether it's family or otherwise, uh, you you gotta you gotta give it your all somehow, some way, and also be humble and you know have some humility and and you know let, you know try to shed the hubris somehow, some way. But it's also yeah, and look on the bright side. I mean, try to look on the bright yeah. side. I mean, you know. But you know. but at the at the same time, you try to give credence to whatever Joe's feelings were. Uh, because everybody is, you know, we're all our own universe, and and yeah. you never know exactly. You got to give some sort of, uh, you have to have some sort of empathy for whatever experience anybody else is going through somehow, somewhere. Uh, you know, that's that's it, just hearing that. It's like I try to. I, I guess I'm trying to be diplomatic about it, but it, it, you know, it, and and to bring some some. Um, levity in some fashion because it just sounds otherwise it's just it's very depressing to hear yeah 
Well, I mean, <laughs> look, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, there, there, there's a lot of levity, and there's, there's levity and wit in the movies. I mean, that's one of the incredible things about, like, All That Eve or most of Joe's movies. There's just wit everywhere, even, you know, Cleopatra. Mm. It, like, it's, it's a really witty movie, and, and you know, <laughs> Sleuth is, is really witty. Like, uh, his work was just consistently... Um, you know, I don't want to oversell it, but it it it's funny and smart, and and you know, it's it makes you happy to hear his dialogue. I mean, all about Eve is just the most gorgeous screenplay, and the acting is great, and he got amazing performances out of out of those people, and it's it's just a, a absolute sheer quotable delight. Well, I'd look forward to watching it, and maybe even I might even be able to watch it tonight at some point. Uh, so I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. 1950, which is in the the pop culture conversation that we are having uh, from 1937 to 1957, technically 1962, in my my uh, idea brain, if you will. Um, you are listening cool. to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We are here with Nick Davis, a filmmaker and writer. And uh, Nick, first of all, usually on the podcast that we do, we like to go to a shameless plug around the half hour. So before we go a little bit more broad in terms of the uh, late 30s, early 40s, and let's even give it, you know, the entire era that we're talking about, like I said. Um, Before we go there, please go ahead with shameless plug to tell our audience uh, both your history and where they can find you. Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I do the Twitter, you know, Nick Davis Pro or Prods or something. Um, but, uh, you know, my shameless plug is, well, look, I'm here talking about the Mankiewicz brothers. I'm a, I'm a, I, I, this book was a labor of, of love, and I've been, you know, basically thinking about it my whole life. But, um, you know, I signed the, con- the book contract uh, 19 years before the book was published. So I worked on it for almost two full decades. Um, and so I would love people to buy it and read it. And if they don't want to read it, perhaps they could listen to the audio book as read by the author, um, which, there you, uh, go. There you know, you go. Uh, there you go. So if, if you haven't had enough of my voice after listening to it on this podcast, uh, you can, you can download it there. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are other, other things. I mean, the, the Mets series, you can, uh, get on Disney Plus, uh, Once Upon a Time in Queens. Um, and, uh, you know, Sam, I know you and I are big Nets fans and feel like the mm-hmm. uh, the drought will soon end. Um, but yes. as of now, the 1986 Mets remain the last time the Mets won the World Series. So you can see their story told uh, in uh, in the film. Well, I'll also just comment that one of the things I loved about the film was how atmospheric it was. And, and you didn't just tell the story. You brought the viewer into 1986, and you did a really good job of, of making it atmospheric, especially for a documentary. You know, a lot of times you, you don't necessarily feel the era the way you do uh, in, in your documentary, and especially with the – there's a very, you know, I just watched the Madoff one, and, and I, I, I watched only, like, episodes later because I caught it with a friend, so I need to watch the first episode. But, you know, it's very fascinating. It, it provides a lot of information. But there's this, there's, there's this style uh, 
you know, I, maybe I'm criticizing too many of my quote-unquote peers, <laughs> even though I've never done it professionally yet. But, but like, I think that there's a style that has just and rooted it, including some of the, the um, dramatized, you know, you have actors playing the, the characters while everybody is describing everything. And there's very much become this by-the-books Netflix documentary series style and you kind of uh, uh, you 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 bucked the trend, if you will, when it came to the 1986 movie. And I think that's something that not enough people talk about when it comes to talking about Once Upon a Time in Queens. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I think I know the style you're referring to. I haven't seen the Madoff film, um, but yeah, I mean, to me, the whole point what you can do with film it's like a time machine so like why wouldn't you do that and um it's just such a, a wonderful opportunity to bring an, a, an era and a time back to life um and like that's that's what film can do so let's do it like why do we have to shoot these interviews in that other way and and you know do drone shots over you know cities and it just it sort of seems like, yeah, but then you're not taking the viewer um, to where your story is, and you're also not taking them on an emotional journey, if I may use that word, um, because they're being constantly reminded of, of you, the filmmaker. And, and, you know, our goal, my goal, is, is uh, always to be sort of invisible, even if you maybe sometimes will hear my question you know, which I try not to do, but sometimes it, it makes for a, a good moment um, in a film if you hear if you hear the question or and, and the way they specifically respond to that question. But um, yeah, I mean, and, and that that's that's why I like you know I love history and so I love pop cultural history and it was fun you know reading and and, and writing about the 30s and 40s and stuff with Herman and Joe because I felt like you know, I want you to feel like, well, what did it feel like for Herman then? You know, okay, so there's Herman down on his luck in the late 30s, and he's broken his leg, and he gets a, he's in the hospital, and Orson Welles comes into his hall. Like, what does that feel like for that guy? You know, and, and same thing with Joe. Like, he's, he's working really hard, and he's getting in a battle with, you know, Louis B. Mayer over Judy Garland, who Joe was sort of a mentor and then also uh, a, a lover too. And he gets in a battle with Louis B. Mayer over her because Louis B. Mayer totally abused her. I mean, the, the system abused her and Joe was sort of trying to defend her and stick yeah. up for her. So like, what does that feel like for Joe? And, and what does it feel like to work at a studio every day? And what is it like when you go to lunch at Romanoff's in the middle of the day and then get too drunk? if you're Herman and decide, eh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it into the office in the afternoon, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, that to me is, that's the fun. And it, it seems like that's the fun of, of your, your idea of, you know, uh, mm. of podcast and, and the, the pilot. It's like, let's go to Brooklyn in the, in the, you know, late thirties right. and forties and feel what that was like. So, I appreciate the segue. Um, one of the things that, you know, I, I capture or try, I'm trying to capture, you know, the the main kid, the main uh, uh, boy uh, is very much into the Brooklyn Eagles. So what's that like? 
um, his sister mm. is very much into radio shows, and, and I, I have the concept of her eventually becoming, you know, wanting to be a performer, um, having listened to these radio shows. So, so painting the picture of what media was like, what pop culture was like, and, and talking about Judy Garland, of course, 1939, The Wizard of Oz strikes gold. Uh, Gone with the Wind strikes gold, I believe, in the same year. Um, so, uh, you know, like, like, I, I guess I'll frame it from a personal perspective. What about the era, as well as your family connection, brought you to film itself? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think it was my family. Like, I, I would say, like, you know, there are certain eras that I just love, right, and, and places that I just love, like New York in the 70s. I was here. I loved it. I love returning to it. Um, I didn't have that feeling about Hollywood in the 30s and, and, and 40s until I started researching it. And, and so I don't, know, I don't know exactly what the answer to your question is, although I do want to say as an aside, uh, Herman worked briefly on um, – uh, the Wizard of Oz, and just for a few weeks, uh, it was just assigned like, okay, do a pass and you know get this story manageable down into a treatment. So he did a little treatment, and um, it was Herman who came up with the idea that when they get to Oz, the film will go from black and white to color, um, which is like, like, come on, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> so, um, but. I don't know. I just, uh, I guess I, I like imagining as I guess you do like, well, what is, what is, what was it like? Like, and you know, so I think sometimes, you know, when you think about, and this is, you know, this is sort of a, a problem of the movies, but you know, when you think about the thirties, you tend to think of them in black and white. Well, guess what? People in the thirties weren't walking around in black and white. Um, they were walking around in color and like the Holocaust happened in color. Like there's so much that is formed in our imaginations by things that we've seen that you sometimes forget. Like the world looked like you look up at the sky in 1938, it looked the same way. I mean, you know, a little smog, whatever, depending on where you are, but like the sky, the sun, the cloud, the trees, that was all the exact same as what we're looking at now. Um, so, uh, and, and the people were people like, yeah, sure. They were, you know, wearing different clothes and talking mm-hmm. in, a, in a manner that was different, but, um, but it's, it's the universality of it all. And, and, you know, getting back to your point about empathy, like I feel like so much of the way our culture talks about the past now, like, oh, they were so stupid and they were doing the other thing. It's like, yeah, but they, they, it was that was what they knew, and you know, I'm sure 50 years from now, people will look back at us and say, "Can you believe they walked around with these little plugs in their ears, and you know, that, that was a way to communicate or whatever." Like, there's so many things that <laughs> we're how, doing. It's how that, I'm recording the podcast right now. It's just so funny. Well, it's how I'm talking to you <laughs> now. But it's like there, there's so many things that, like, are going to look ridiculous and absurd. But we're doing the best we can. We're living to the best of our abilities. And, you know, we, we just can't apply modern thoughts 
to the, right. the, the, the past as if we are superior. Like, we're not. Things have evolved, and we now think this way about, you know, whatever it is. But um, but the the idea that like you know we're we're somehow better than the past and we can laugh at them and oh ha 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 I mean it's 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 fun in Mad Men to see them constantly you know lighting cigarettes and having scotch in in the office and stuff <laughs> but it's you know uh, I think what Mad Men did brilliantly was it didn't actually right. condescend to its characters um, even though it got away with with poking gentle fun at them for things like that. Um, anyway. uh, yeah, to, to, to tangent specifically with Mad Men, I remember the first season where men are chasing around a woman and then they catch her and then lift up her skirt or, or whatever she's wearing just to be like, you see, I won the bet. She's wearing this color underwear. Like that was such right. a good right. way of kind of showing, you know, just like, like, especially within the context of the Me Too movement why things needed to change uh, while, right. again, not necessarily, like you said, uh, condescending to the characters. Right. I mean, you don't look at that scene and think, I can't watch this show. I mean, some people maybe. Right. Maybe, um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just it, I, I appreciate I've always thought about about that in terms of, uh, of Mad Men and, and why it's such a brilliant show, literally from first episode to last, I, I, my opinion about it. Um, so I go into, like, what you're talking about, too, in the way that the later part of the 20th century formed their opinion on history was very much based off of the media that was being created in the late 30s and early 40s. And how they were basically, like I, I said earlier, like I alluded to earlier in the podcast, uh, they, they were inventing modern media. And so let, let's think of, you know, just in terms of, of you have cinema, um, you know, revolutionizing everything at the time. Um, but, you know, a big and, and only like up until that point, 20 years old uh, at the at the uh, 20-year mark, you know, born at the 20-year mark of cinema was radio. And I, I sometimes, I, you know, you think about the way that advertising is done and how, you, you know, I, you think about how you hear a, a radio show. You can go onto YouTube and hear, like, some Disney radio show, let's say, around the time that Snow White was coming out, which is basically exactly around the time that my pilot takes place. I even talk, mm. I even have a scene where they're watching Snow White. Um, but mm. it's brought mm. to you by Colgate. It's brought to you by, by this. And, right. you know, we sometimes, we sometimes give, you know, we, we give flack to the way that advertising, that, that sponsorships are tied in now. But it's always been that way since the, these medias have come. It, is, is it perceived more classy, even though it was arguably more blatant at the time, the way no, sponsorships no, would no, be tied into no. all this? I think when, when we look back on it, we think, oh, my God, that's so much classier, you know, brought to you by Chesterfield. But, it, but like, no, at the time it wasn't. And, in fact, there's a great – speech in uh, the, the, the Joe's film, A Letter to Three Wives, where Kirk Douglas, he goes to dinner um, 
and uh, oh, and maybe it's his. Well, I can't remember, but his wife's boss, who is like a big radio executive, and he just goes off about radio ads and how horrible they are and how they're selling happiness in this totally phony way, and you know they're selling perfection, and it's a great speech, and Kirk Douglas is actually really good. Um, and so it, 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 what's interesting about it is like it goes directly to your question because you, you feel like, okay, so there were people in 1949 who felt, God, this is embarrassing, like these ads being crammed down my throat, which is, you know, the way someone might feel today when they're watching a ball game and these ads that aren't there in City Field are showing up on the screen behind the batter and, and rotating every five, you know, every five seconds. Um, and, you know, you look at ballparks, the yeah, Abbott Field was lined with, um, you know, hit the, hit the, hit, you know, hit this sign, win a suit. Like the, the outfield had all these, <laughs> you know, advertisements on them. And I feel like we find that so charming. But I'm sure there were people in 1938 who would have been like, this is so disgusting. What's the matter with a green fence? Like, I like a, a straight green outfield fence. I don't want to be constantly reminded and constantly being sold to. But, you know, that's right. America, that's capitalism, and that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, well, it was certainly impossible, other than the Mets movie, for us to have this entire podcast without talking about baseball. But this is the way it also ties in to media. In, in 1939, uh, it was the first televised baseball game, and the Brooklyn Dodgers were involved. And I wish I had the exact quote right now in front of me, from Red Barber, but he talks about like like I guess it was like Mobile Gas, Wheaties, and something mm. else was were the advertisers, and he talks about how every time it's just like, well, have you tried Wheaties yet? And he would literally uh-huh. pour a ball. Uh-huh. And it was all improvised. It was it was all improvisation. Like he had no script for it. It was just like yeah, at some point mention Wheaties and sell it somewhat. And he poured a right. ball of Wheaties, right. ate it, and was like, that's good. <laughs> Uh-huh. That's hilarious. That's great. I didn't know that. Um, that's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, that's, you know, that you're right. Like, I mean, I think I, I tend to think of it as the 20s because that's when sort of, you know, mass media came into being. But, but you know, then you get the movies and sound movies in 27 and, you know, more and more radio in the 30s. And it's like, yeah, that created our world in a way where, you know, in like, you know, if you take someone from 1905 and plucked them into 1940, they they would have been horrified uh, by right. all the sort of all the, the sales and the selling that was going on. Well, well, spe- speaking of that too, and and um, you know, this was something that was. And this is where I keep going. The 30s invented modern media in that not only are we talking about radio, not only are we talking about uh, uh, movies, but all you know, also the literally the birth of TV, but we're also talking about the birth of merchandising uh, within all of this context, uh, that those movies had toys tied in for the first time. You know, you could maybe point to, I guess, probably Betty Boop in the 20s, but Mickey Mouse in the early 30s really blew it up. Mm. Um, and this is mm-hmm. like total like, like side note in terms of Disney being anti-Semitic. I I think that based off of how many Jews he worked with, I don't think he was exactly anti-Semitic to the point he was sending money to Hitler. Um, I think he may have gotten caught using 
uh, uh, derogatory terms towards Jewish people at some point. But the person who invented the merchandising of Mickey Mouse was Jewish. So, I, I, you know, considering some of the things I've learned about connections to working with Jew, Jews, and my grandfather worked for Buena Vista starting in the 1950s, um, I, oh. I just I always thought that like it's really kind of uh, uh, run rampant this this rumor of, of Disney being anti-Semitic. Um, but but going going to that again, you know, looping back around, merchandising was really invented in the 1930s in many ways. Yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, it, I think again, it's like you know, it's the whole idea of squeezing every last drop out of everything and, you know, what we now call content, like they weren't thinking of it quite in those terms, but they were thinking, all right, well, people like this movie. Well, can we sell them a little doll of Mickey Mouse or, you know, can we advertise and put, you know, put, put, you know, the star of the movie in a Chesterfield ad. And, and so then that'll get people to go see the movie and buy the commercial, you know, buy the cigarettes. Um, and so that kind of cross, um, you know, cross merchandising begins to happen also almost as quickly as merchandising happens. Yeah, that's a very good point too. The cross uh, merchandising, uh, you know, it's, it, this is, and, and, and this is where I knew that we'd go so many different directions yet. We didn't know where, where we would start. Um, but I also think about, you know, one of my characters also gravitates away from baseball and starts focusing on comic books because Superman comes out mm. in 1938. And mm. that, that, the 30s also involved the birth of one of the biggest pop culture phenomenons to this day. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's it's uh, amazing. And in the same way that, you know, the children in the 40s were like, oh, read a book. What are you doing reading these comic books? Now you look back and you think, oh, those comic books were so charming. And in fact, it was an art form. And, you know, and obviously, you know, all that's come from that. And, you know, I mean, we don't have to get into the whole marvelization of the whole universe, but like it was it was happening then in a totally different way. Um and, uh, yeah, I, and, and I mean, I think one thing that hadn't happened, I don't think, was the, um, this sort of, there was a much clearer line between stuff for kids and stuff for adults. Um, and it wasn't, I don't, it's an interesting question, and I don't even have any idea what the answer is. But, like, when did that start to change? Was that, you know, where, where, all movies were aimed at, you know, sort of everybody and, okay, this is a kid's movie, but we're going to put in a lot of jokes for the parents. Um, and now we're, our biggest movies are, are, are about comic book characters because, you know, the adults grew up with it and, and nothing else will get the kids into the theaters too. Um, and I don't know when, when that happened because it, it did used to be like, no, there, just, there was a clear kind of, grown-up culture, and, and then there was stuff for kids. And and that was also felt out a little bit at the time. You know, going back to Disney and, and the cartoons that were being released, they weren't quite sure whether it was exclusively for kids uh, right away right. either. Right. Um, and it kind right. of did form into that, you know. Right. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, like, you know, even, White was yeah. – 
Yeah, I mean, when Snow White came out, that was 37, right? Like, I think that was the first feature-length animated movie, and they they expected and, and were happy that, that grown-ups did go to it, and it wasn't just a kid's movie. Right, yeah. And, uh, and it turned out, like, by... And it's just funny to think about uh, marijuana culture at the time. That's a whole other podcast, literally. But uh, Fantasia, <laughs> you know didn't even necessarily do as, as, like, that's what's so fascinating about Snow White is that it exceeded expectations. And now there were, there was this, this ground there, there was this floor uh-huh. for what Disney's supposed to do. And he didn't necessarily hit those, those marks after Snow White and the bankers, uh, you know, th- th- this is what's fascinating about Walt was that he was, very much the creative within the the dynamic between him and his brother Roy, uh, and Roy was the money guy going between him and the banks. Where Walt would be like, "Why can't we get another two million dollars?" And Roy would have to explain to him, you know, after Snow White happened, and 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 they didn't want to give over a lot of money for Snow White, but it ended up being a cash cow at the box office, bleeding into 1938 because I do believe it came out in December 1937. Um, so, mm. uh, uh, you know, you go, you go, I read about Fantasia was that it wasn't this box office behemoth, but it had, and I guess it was mostly Bohemians at the time they said, or at least that's what the biography of Walt Disney I read that, that, that the, the pot smokers of 1940 were like kind of keeping, <laughs> keeping Fantasia afloat. <laughs> really? That's so funny. Cause I mean, I, I remember when it was reissued or re-released, I don't know whether it was late 60s or early 70s, and that was the thing. Like, it was like, okay, right. you know, all the, the, the <laughs> whatever they were called then, like hop heads or pie heads yeah. or whatever, right. uh, would, would go to Fantasia. I mean, t- 2001 was no longer in theaters, so they had to see something. Um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> well <That's> funny. <laughs> so, you know, we're coming up on almost an hour, so... Uh, Getting into some of your favorites of the late 30s and the early 40s movies-wise, let, let's let's go. Uh, you, you know, just throw throw any uh, start. I'll I'll start it with Young Abe Lincoln, and I, I forget whether it's, it's called that, but it was <laughs> yeah. uh, Henry Fonda plays Abe yeah. in a oh, fictionalized yeah. like first. And it's yeah. what I loved about it was that. I think it was John Ford, and, and, and one of the yeah. reasons why it's so well well put together. But um, I, I, one of the things I loved about it was that it was just basically a courtroom drama. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just about Lincoln as a lawyer in, in, you know, Illinois fighting for the good fight, and, you know, doing the whole Henry Fonda thing. It's, um, yeah, boy, I haven't seen that in a long time. That's a, that's a sweet performance. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's Henry Fonda as a hero. It's like it's you know after you see Daniel Day Lewis do Lincoln, you sort of like all right, well, I I can sort of believe that that was what Lincoln really was. But but Henry Fonda is hilarious. Yeah, it's good. Uh, well, I'll answer that uh, with bringing up Baby, um, which is just uh, I think one of the all-time great screwball comedies, um, and uh, Howard Hawks in '38, and that's uh, Cary Grant and. Um, uh, Catherine Hepburn, and it's just, it's, you know, it's, I think it's one of the funniest and best constructed uh, comedies of all time. 
Beautiful. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting um, what you talked about with Wizard of Oz in 1939 uh, with the, the, the fact that Herman had the idea of going black and white to color. Um, and, and us talking about just overall pop culture changing when a movie like, like that comes out. Um, it, it, it's just, you know, sometimes you, you, it, it's been so marketed. It's been so part of the overall American zeitgeist, uh, that you sometimes forget how good of a movie it actually is. Oh, uh, Wizard of Oz? Yes, yes, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it, it, it's funny. It is a great movie. Neither of my kids liked it, and so I haven't seen it that <laughs> much. Like I, mean, I, I used to see it all the time, and I, my wife and I, we expected that our kids would love it. And I don't know the way that we showed it to them too early. They just didn't get into it, and and so it didn't like enter the heavy rotation along with something like Singing in the Rain or or. Uh, you know, Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, right? But um, uh, yeah, Singing in the Rain is great. So, um, but yes, no, it is a great movie. And the other movie that I feel like is is getting overlooked in the last couple of decades is Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. When I was right. a kid, it was like I I believed my mother when she would tell me Citizen Kane is the best movie of all time, uh, and your grandfather wrote it. Um, but but I also thought no, no, Gone with the Wind is the best movie of all time, isn't it? Is it surely this this other thing, which is color and has battle scenes and is exciting, that's the greatest movie of all time. And and that you know I think it is. So I, I just I love that movie. So. I you know I've never all seen Gone it. with the Wind crazy enough. Wow, big hole there. Oh yeah, you, you, yeah big you, hole. You, no, you big have, hole, big hole. That's a big hole. I mean I. I find the older I get, the more I I don't want to just go on Netflix and see what's on, but I want to look at my list and see, mm. hey, how have I never seen, you know, Barry Lyndon? Like, how did Barry Lyndon? How did I get to be this age and I never saw this acclaimed Kubrick movie that okay, I think is going to be boring, but people love it, Barry mm. Lyndon. And I watch it, and I'm like, it's not boring. It's great. It's hilarious. It's it's very talk about witty. Um, and uh, anyway, so I I'm trying to fill holes now, like. You know, I got a, I got a, uh, you know, kind hearts and cornets. That's a hole. Why have I never seen? That? <laughs> I want to see that? You know. So well, yes, you got to. It's gotta, both you gotta, a blessing. Go it's both a blessing and a curse. This, uh, both the industry as well as just the media itself. The medium itself is is that to be in love with with this. There's, you know, especially for a lifetime. It's as you know. There's obviously a finite amount of movies, but but you only have uh, so long to watch so many movies. So you're never yeah. going to get to them. Yeah. So for any lifetime, you basically both music at this point, after, uh, you know, 100 plus years of developing this stuff, you both have uh, uh, an infinite amount of music to listen to and an infinite amount of movies and TV shows to listen to, to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I I envy you that you haven't seen All About Eve. You know, All About Eve is just consistently <laughs> entertaining. So that's, you know, that's that's a good one. Well, I, I can't wait. And um, uh, real quick, uh, uh, since I, I do believe we're going to start uh, segueing out here, 
Um, but music, you know, we didn't necessarily advertise this as, as focusing on music, but we, you know, I did mention pop culture. You know, one of the things that drives me with this is, is the era of, of basically pop music being invented uh, in many ways mm. through jazz and, and, uh, and the blues. Um, you know, I, I haven't done enough country listening to uh, for the 1930s, even though by the end of the 1940s, Hank Williams is, is the, the craze uh, when it comes to country music and, and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. So when you think of the era of, and, and, and the, the, you know, let's stick to the late 30s, early 40s, just because music changes so much over the course of the 20 years that I'm focused on. Um, what, what do you think, who do you think the most about and what do you think the most about? Uh, I think about Billie Holiday. Uh, I, I just love her voice and I, I can't believe how, um, uh, I just can't believe, like, like I've never put on a Billie Holiday song or, or heard one where I don't stop and think, my God, that, that's just like otherworldly. And the, the uh, like joy and, and, and anguish of life is in every note. Um, I, I just think she's one of the great artists of all time. And um, so th- she's who I, like when I think of like the music of the thirties, I, I instantly uh, think of her. I don't know. I that think much that's a, like, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, she had, a, I mean, like she died, I think in 57, ironically, uh, you know, another thing to potentially tie into. Um, and, and I know the character to do it, but uh you know, she had a very tragic end where the cops were were outside her hospital door while she, you know, like had a Must heroin. Be. Yeah, no, she had a fit. absolutely yeah. horrible, it, horrible. Yeah. And I, I don't even I don't even know whether it was OD at that point or whether it was just major sickness from doing so much heroin. I, I forget exactly, but what I read is just and I, I that's another movie. Talk about infinite amount of movies to see and the 70s um i've never seen uh the uh lady sings the blues with with diana ross um yeah and, i don't uh, uh, yeah Billy, I, i've Billy never Holland seen that I, I don't consider that a whole yeah <laughs> yeah I, I have a feeling I, that would i'd be interested yeah well that would okay. be interesting i hear she does a great job and billy d williams is in it of course as well um but but i will also throw out there fats waller i think he from a yeah. pop music perspective, like what a songwriter, uh, I ain't misbehaving yeah. and the way it's structured is, yeah. is basically, I think doesn't get enough credit for laying the foundation of how to write a pop song. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, 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 you're probably right. Um, he was great. And I, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever saw the show ain't misbehaving, um, but it was, Oh no, uh, I have not. It was, oh, it was really good. Uh, I don't know when it was on Broadway first or when it came back or they revived it, I'm sure, a bunch of times, but it's terrific. And and that's a whole nother, you know, hour of talking about theater and Broadway, (laughs) Uh, you know, and and what came out of the 30s, 40s and 50s even then. But obviously we don't have enough time, but, but that's one of the things that's beautiful about this era is that there's a plethora amount of uh, conversation to be had about it. And I appreciate you coming on tonight, Nick, to, uh, to help me with that. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. It was a total delight and pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for asking me.
So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And without further ado, we come to our final word. Uh, first of all, again, thank you, Nick Davis, a filmmaker and writer, uh, for coming onto the, the podcast tonight. And uh, I'm going to send it over to you for your once more shameless plug and final word. It's funny because we've been talking about, uh, you know, advertising and how, you know, onerous and horrible it can be. And how, <laughs> I, like, when we were talking about Ebbets Field, and I was just imagining that, you know, someone like, you know, my grandfather being there in 1938, just looking at the signs and just thinking, what kind of world are we creating? Um, and so <laughs> to end with uh, you're asking me for a shameless plug, uh, what, what I would say is uh, I, I, you know, I, 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 go buy the book. I'm a big fan of this book that took me 19 years to write. So that's my shameless plug. Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait, uh, and you can get it wherever books are sold or listen to uh, it on, uh, you know, uh, audio, audible kind of thing. Was that shameless enough? Excellent, Nick. Thank you. Yeah, it's completely shameless <laughs> enough. And H. Okay. Stark is rolling over in his grave for what you said about the Evansfield Walls. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's that, you know, this, this, is, this is something, the uh, kind of conversation that I want to have more of on this podcast, uh, and, and uh, it, this, this certainly especially helps with where I currently am in the uh, newest draft of, uh, of the Bedford and Sullivan pilot. So thank you again, Great. Nick, and thank Great. you all out there for, uh, for listening tonight. Uh, more to come. Take care.